Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we are learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. We live in a world obsessed with its own conception of beauty. We see this reality depicted in movies and television, as well as our own social media news feeds. For many of us, we strive to experience beauty without truly understanding what it is. Merriam-Webster defines beauty as the quality or aggregate of qualities in a person or a thing that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit. Though this definition is helpful, I'm left wondering, what is beauty and how do we discern it from its counterfeits? Melissa was a marriage and family therapist in therapy. Her therapist encouraged her to take some time to do her own work around a sensitive topic, her own eating disorder. Pausing her therapeutic practice, she focused on addressing her needs in the moment. During the day, she was in treatment, while in the evenings, she was focused on her own master's level studies in spiritual formation. Doing both simultaneously, she noticed that beauty does not come as advertised. Ultimately, we are being played. Today, I am joined by Melissa Johnson, author of Soul Deep Beauty, Fighting for Our True Worth in a World Demanding Flawless, and the host of the Impossible Beauty podcast. Melissa, as a therapist in therapy, describe the moment that you recognized your own need, and what did you do next? Yeah, such a good introduction, by the way, of the quick, a nice recap of a very long story. Yeah. What did I do next? Sometimes I wish these things happened more quickly, but for me, it was exactly honestly, yes, it was a long process of realizing like denial and then realizing what I was doing wasn't working. And then finally, for, for me, the what next was allowing myself to be admitted to doing some intensive work around my eating disorder that I had denied for, for quite some time. And I think for, for very I, I think very understandable reasons, just because I think our culture is so messed up around some of these messages around food and body image and beauty, as you just so articulately stated. You mentioned this idea of denying, which would mean that its inverse is also true, accepting. What was it like to go from denial to acceptance with regards to something as personal as an eating disorder? That's a good question. I think... You know, it's interesting how I think this is where this idea of community can be so powerful. And almost, I think maybe some people would talk about the spiritual practice of confession. And, you know, it's not like when I, I went yes. through like a secular treatment experience, but like as I'm just putting this together, like as we're talking right now, like I wonder if there is an element of confession of just unveiling what is true. And I think probably what helped me accept where I was at was the the bravery of the other people with me in treatment. And we were all able to kind of at different points in, in like group settings, like look around and be like, wait, you're, you're believing that too. And, and I think also with, with the acceptance, I think a piece that was helpful was having compassion toward myself and towards others and seeing what I talk about is like, we've been sold a broken brand of beauty. And just starting to see how I was, what I was believing was kind of trash. And it was largely because that's what we've been 
said. And so I think the acceptance came progressively, but I think pieces of like being in community and kind of unveiling what I was believing, but also the unhelpful belief that I had been immersed in. And you're discovering something that you're not supposed to see. You're not supposed to look behind this curtain. You're supposed to take what (laughs) is being sold to you and accept that and then realize, well, if this is what beauty is, then I will never measure up. So I'm just going to live in my shame and I'm going to spend a lot of money on these products so that maybe in the hopes, in the hopes that maybe I will get a tenth of this or I'll be able to achieve something to where I will finally have worth. I love how you mentioned just the power of confession and confession in community. This has worked for 12-step programs for years, this idea of coming together with people who are sharing in our own brokenness. They, they have been to where we have been. Almost any time I speak at a church, someone comes up to me and they're like, hey, man, I'm, are you a friend of Bill W.? And I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm not. But they're like, but, but we, we, we really loved what you said, this idea of vulnerable people loving other vulnerable people, you know, I'm. I'm messed up. I got issues, but I also have a story. And it's when we come together and we realize that it's not just me. Yeah. I'm not the only one with whatever I'm carrying. And that if you really look around and people were really honest and they accepted what they've experienced and and who they've become, Mm -hmm. they might find way more healing. And it sounds like that's Mm -hmm. what you have discovered on your journey, especially as truth has come out in community with other people who've experienced something similar. Yeah. And I I appreciate you like drawing that out, Raleigh, because I I think one of my, I don't know how to say this, like maybe my my fears or concerns with this book is I think sometimes, I mean, obviously there are a number of things just being vulnerable, but um, I think one of the pieces is, you know, maybe readers will see like, oh, well, she has an eating disorder. So those are this conversation is for people who like her who have an eating disorder. Whereas my hope is that we can see the pressures that we're all under so that, like you said, like we can kind of have those spaces of like, hey, yeah, me too. I think I maybe what I what we've been fed isn't so helpful for our souls when it comes to these conversations around beauty and all that comes with it, food and body image. That is such a, an unsettling feeling when your book is about to come out and you're realizing I was really vulnerable in this. How will people <laughs> interpret this? When my book was coming out, I, I remember calling my pastor and I'm like, I'm scared to death. We went for a long walk. I remember it like it was yesterday, walking along the road next to Grand Central in Manhattan. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, is it too late to take this back? Is, <laughs> I mean, I know yeah. I've already received, you know, my advance. I know, but is it is it too late? But I think you're tapping into this just general truth that mm-hmm. we all take different roads to get there. But at some point, mm-hmm. no matter what we've faced, we have to address our society's conception of beauty. Because it's being forced on us. Maybe it's not an eating disorder. Maybe it could be something as simple as maybe I've, I've gained a little weight or maybe I'm not as athletic as the other people or maybe, maybe I don't have abs. Maybe I have an ab. One is better than none, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But this idea of not enoughness, this idea of mm-hmm. being incomplete and not being perfect. Melissa, how do you think I know I'm just kind of throwing this idea at you, but how do you think perfectionism and our society's concept of beauty coincide? Oh, I think they go hand in hand. 
So, you know, so there's this researcher and I guess you'd call her a scholar as well. Jean Kilborn, she has this film series called Killing Us Softly. And she talks about how beauty, our conceptions of beauty or beauty ideal has become absolute flawlessness. And so I think that that, this idea of like a perfection or uh, being flawless, I think it's always been with us, or I should say for like, since like print media, especially uh, when we think about, I don't know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So like print media and magazines were huge. And so we don't hear about Photoshopping, but I think what has become especially tricky currently is just social media and how now it's not just, you know, models or celebrities that have flawless skin and quote unquote flawless body. It is now our our friends and um, basically, I think I'm trying to think of my statistics, but a large number of people do use filters. And um, so we're, we're, what we're looking at is really unreal. And we're looking for this quote unquote perfection. And so I think that I, I don't know for previous generations if beauty and perfection would have gone as hand in hand as they do today. But because we are such an image saturated culture and most of those images have been um, tweaked, we, I think we really are, are living in the midst of those two things played into each other or, or almost like they're looked at as synonymous with each other. So you're saying we compare ourselves with impossible goals. Yes. This demand yes. for perfection, this demand for flawlessness. I love how you said that. This idea of like, I can't have anything wrong with me. I have to be perfect. And, and I think on the other side of that perfection is everything you've ever wanted. It's, it's the love that you didn't receive when you were in your formative years. It's the companionship that you want. It's everything that it's the golden ticket. And so yes. we strive and we strive and we strive to get there, but we can't, but we're sold this promise. If you do this. And I feel like what you are also addressing is this idea that beauty doesn't just come in its own package. There's some red tape. There's some strings attached to beauty. If you really want this, if you want this flawlessness, buy this, do this. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry. And you've said before that billions of dollars are being made off of our shame. <laughs> Could you unpack that a little bit for me? Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. So I kind of recently, in the book, I do this as well, but even more so recently, taking a, a deep dive into like the origins of modern advertising. And there was like a shift in the 20s or 30s where marketing for a product went from like playing off of our logic. So like, buy this product because your sheets will be, I don't know, X times cleaner than this other product. So definitely playing to our logic. Whereas during the 1920s or 30s, I can't remember, it was actually Sigmund Freud's nephew who became the the father of modern advertising or marketing here in the US. And there was this shift to, instead of playing on our logic, he realized that you can actually play off of people's um, subconscious desires. So things like their emotions, their insecurities. And so uh, you'll see this in the products then or the, the marketing of that time, where instead of selling to our logic, they're selling to like stir up different emotions or insecurities. And all of a sudden, no longer is a car good because it has, I don't know, it has safe tires or something. 
but because it represents freedom or a certain part about like, it means something about who you are as a human. And so I think that this, this advertising is, is purposely playing on, I would say, largely our shame at this point. And there's a, a quote I like to call out when we're talking about this, this red tape that comes with it. And this comes just from Paul Hamburg. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He says, the media markets desire. And by reproducing ideals that are absurdly out of line with what real bodies really do look like, the media perpetuates a market for frustration and disappointment. Its customers will never disappear. Wow, that's a good quote. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of going back to, to your original question, kind of, um, kind of, and can you, can you refresh my memory? What the original, the original, I kind of just got lost in my history of advertising. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, that was, that was really good. And I feel like that was very helpful. I'm actually trying to remember my original question, <laughs> but I think it has something to do with this idea of, money being made off of our shame, this idea of how we have been told over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that perfection is the ideal. And so we have almost been, groomed might be too strong of a word, but shaped into people who will do anything. We will seek perfection at any costs. And this conversation is interesting for me because I've realized for many years I've been a perfectionist. I thought I was just trying really mm. hard. I thought I was just working. Mm. But for me, it was I was not enough unless. And then I started mm. realizing that I was holding myself to a standard that I didn't hold anyone to. And I was habitually not meeting that standard and it was growing shame and more shame. Mm. Well, if I only mm-hmm. thought like this or if I only looked like that. And I think... At the end of the day, rather than making me better, that enforces this kind of paralysis. I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to dig myself out of this hole. And there's no way I just keep getting deeper. And I think many of us are there when we think about beauty. Yeah. And we're, we're pulling these strings. And if I just do this, mm-hmm. then I'll be there. But what yeah. does it look like to kind of have, I like to tell people like, you know, I was a perfectionist, but now I'm living into this idea of imperfectionism, this idea mm-hmm. where I treasure just yeah, being all right, doing an okay job, <laughs> maybe not mm-hmm. being perfect, but being there and being present. What does it look like to be an imperfectionist when it comes to beauty? Yeah, I think for me, you know, I, I think it reminds me of this conversation of like our true or authentic self. And what I mean by that is, you know, what am I being called to do in, well, first, first of all, for me, I guess I should say too, I have to like redefine the whole thing because to me, for me, the cultural or societal definition of beauty is problematic because it only feeds perfectionism. And so uh, as I talk about in the book, my re- redefined definition of beauty is the life of God at work in us and among us. And so when I reframe beauty in that way to be an imperfectionist and in that definition would be to try to be aware of where God is inviting me in this season. How can I show up as my authentic self in in this particular season? And with that, I know there there is grace built in. And so I think for me, it's required like a whole 
kind of shedding the old ideas or the cultural ideas of beauty and embracing what I see as authentic beauty and then giving myself grace even within that new understanding. Does that make sense? No, that makes a lot of sense. And I love how you define beauty. It's the life of God at work in us and among us. You know, when I think of beauty, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. How did you come to that definition? Such a good question. I think, so for me, I, I think what I started to see is just the ugliness of societal beauty and how it tears us apart. It tears our relationships apart, or it can, I should say. And, you know, how it even, when we think about shame, uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson talks about how shame disintegrates our neural networks. And so really societal beauty in a number, in a number of ways has this disintegrating effect. But what I started to notice in my, my studies that you mentioned at the top of our time in spiritual formation, I, I started to be exposed to the breadth of the life and beauty of God. And obviously I've, I've had a faith my whole life, but I would say that I, I started to read the mystics and I started to see how they described God in just this expansive and mysterious way that I maybe hadn't given as much uh, like airtime to and heart and headspace to previously. And what really pulled it together for me was in the work of this theologian named Baxter Kruger. He talked about the dance and how the dance is the love of God, this dynamic dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for me, that was kind of the the moment where I started to see like, oh my goodness, that is beautiful. This this dance, this energy of love in our midst, the energy of God and that brings about connection and integration. And so that was kind of a, a slow kind of unfurling of that definition for me. I'm so intrigued by this idea of integration versus disintegration. Integration would promote an interconnected relationship with God, ourselves, and each other. While disintegration, it always prioritizes shame, isolation, and this idea of perfectionism. Like, if I only do, it's, it's this, if I only do, it's, it's pure law at the end of the day. If I do this, mm-hmm. then I will live. If I do this, then I can be happy. If I, and at the end of the day, that will never save us. That will never change our situation. But mm-hmm. integration has this idea of grace just built into it. That mm-hmm. as we are, we're created for relationship. We're created for love. We have worth. And one is being sold by society while another, you almost, you have to kind of, Avert your gaze from what's being thrown at you to actually see it properly. And you mentioned the mystics, these Mm -hmm. Christian philosophers over the years who have always kind of turned their back a little bit to society. Was there a mystic that really captivated you or caught your attention as you were doing this study? Uh, I wish I had Juliana Norwich's of Norwich's, uh, her some of her writings like right in front of me, but I think her, some of the way she would talk about the love of God was just incredible. And she had those, I think she called like showing where she would have these experiences with God. And I think I just, I, you know, I I went to a seminary and I think that studying God with our, our minds is is beautiful and I love it. And I, I don't think I had given as much space to, 
to thinking about like, what would it be like to actually encounter God, like love itself? And she would ask God these questions in her interactions with him and just the way that God would come back with these incredible answers. But the answers were just all about the immensity of his love. And I I think that that was, um, that's one of the mystics that definitely stands out to me. Today, I was reading a book called Return from Camino. I'd recently done something called the Camino de Santiago and really processing this next stage Mm -hmm. as I'm back home and really thinking through what happened. And there was a Julian of Norwich quote, and it said Mm -hmm. this, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. Yes. And I said, I'm curious what that brings up. You go ahead, go no, ahead. Because no, I want to hear what it brings up for you. Because for me, I was just like, yeah. oftentimes this weight of expectation just lays on us, mm-hmm. and then it's mm-hmm. the the voice of the law says, "If you do this, then you will live." And sometimes we mm-hmm. tune out the voice of grace that says, "But you are well, you are loved, you are worthy." Yeah. And to hear that, in a sense, there's this idea of hold on, mm-hmm. take a deep breath. You're in this moment. Everything's going to be okay. There's like kind of an assuredness. How about you? What What are you? What do you grab from that? You know, it's interesting. I think I think I run more anxious, and so I think that like some of these like ex- the natural existential angst of being human. I think I get caught up in it easily, and so I think a lot of my journey, like that, happened throughout. That I talk about in the book. I think was a lot of going from striving energy to abiding energy and like almost like resting in grace. And that quote, I think, has the energy of everything you described. And I think it gives me hope for like the end game. Like I know, because I know somewhat a lot of, uh, I have spent time worrying about like, what if something happens to someone I love? Or like, what if this happens? Or what if this happens? and to know like in the end, it's all going to be well. And I, I think about that in terms of this shalom reality that I think we're, that God has been tirelessly seeking to reclaim where we are interconnected with, with God, with, with ourselves, but also our loved ones where and creation, where is this just deep, I would say shalom or, or wellness. Maybe if we go to um, use, try to use some of her language there, all shall be well. Well, here's another quote that really hits at that idea. If there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it. For it was not shown to me, but this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love. And I think as we think of things like beauty that seem to be in many ways shifting sands of enoughness, this desire to be perfect, to remember that we are kept in this everlasting love, that this is our present reality. We are loved. Mm-hmm. We don't have mm-hmm. to work for love. We have love. We can work from love, but our society does not want to sell us on that. They don't yeah. want to tell you that everything's okay, that you're fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, there's no money made off of that. And I think that's why I... I've quoted this in a couple other interviews, but uh, I had a conversation with Dr. Hillary McBride and she talked about how she had to burn this 
societal idea about beauty down. And I love that language because I think what I realize is like this societal beauty actually isn't beauty. Like I actually think beauty with a capital B is, I would say like the life and fullness of of God. And we think about like the transcendentals of um, beauty and goodness and um, I'm like escaping the third one, <laughs> beauty, goodness, and truth and how those are like represent the character of God. And so I think when we see um, and are privy to some of the dimensions of like how huge that beauty is and like the quote that you just gave, this everlasting love, that is, to me, that is what is actual, like that's the definition of beauty. And so like these cultural definitions are just so wrong and I was going to say incomplete, but it's not even, they're not incomplete because they're not even, um, there's such a, it's such a warped definition of, of beauty when we have it in comparison or we can think about it in comparison with the life of God um, and the expansiveness and eternality of that. And I love how you, as you were quoting her, you mentioned this idea of burning it down, not trying to recuperate it, not trying to rehabilitate it, not even trying to redeem it, but just saying, no, no, we're, this, this takes more than stripping it down to the studs. The whole operating system is flawed. We need a new operating system. Yeah. I, I think I think that is that is incredible. And I love how in this conversation we have gone from talking about beauty and our own attainment and understanding of it and our own responses of denial or acceptance, our need to interpret it through community and confess our understandings of beauty to mm-hmm. others so that we can at least hear other people say, you know, I have the same feeling. Me too. This isn't this isn't right. I I don't like this. I'm feeling shame. To understand that with the beauty that is being sold to us, this idea of absolute flawlessness, if we're not struggling with perfectionism, we're not listening to culture. We're not listening to society. And even what you said about how marketing has shifted from appealing to logic to appealing to subconscious desires, to our insecurities. I didn't know that. I think I had an idea, but I definitely didn't know that Freud's nephew was behind this. I didn't know that there was an intentional, at the, at the onus of it, there was an intentional psychological manipulative component to how we understood and what we believed beauty to be. And so as you talk about reframing beauty from not something that we work towards, but something that we receive in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. that, that is huge. This idea of where is God inviting me in this season? How is God meeting me in beauty? And how that ultimately brings integration rather than disintegration. But ultimately, the thing that must disintegrate is our unhealthy views of beauty. We can't clean that up. We have to actually seek beauty in a different place. And from what I'm understanding, this is, this is what your work is about. You're saying true beauty exists. You are beautiful. You have worth. But we can only know ourselves as we know God. Would you, would you agree with that statement? That that's a key? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I love what you said, that beauty isn't something we can work toward, but it is something that we can receive. I think that that is another key of that. That was very well said. Thank you. 
as we're trying to navigate how to receive beauty from working towards it, what are three things that you would give our listeners just to think through? Yeah, I think the first one is something called media literacy. And I think the crux of that is when we view media, whether it's social media or TV, etc., we see through the agenda of the advertiser or the corporation and try to see, like, what are they trying to sell me on? What emotion are they trying to elicit? And, uh, you know, what product are they trying to sell? Because oftentimes, I think when we respond to, to these advertisements, again, we're doing it from a place of whatever different emotions they're trying to elicit. So maybe it's shame, et cetera, or insecurity. I think when we start using media literacy and looking at media through the lens of kind of uh, a critical lens, we can start to see the agenda and then see it for what it is and not maybe, hopefully it won't um, penetrate us as, as deeply as it previously did. But I think another thing we can do is actually reduce our media usage overall, but also maybe what media sources we are taking in. I just had an interview with Catherine Claire Larson. She's a, a writer. And she just talked about how there are certain things that we can do in our lives to be fire starters for wonder. And there are like dampeners of wonder in our lives. And excess media usage was one of her wonder dampeners. And so I think we can be mindful of decreasing media usage overall. I I heard this like, I would say staggering statistic that uh, in this documentary called The Illusionist, they talk about how by the year 2020, we'll be at the point of media saturation where we are exposed to media 80% of our waking hours. And I spoke to the filmmaker a couple of weeks ago on my podcast, Elena Rossini, and she was saying that she thinks that we're past 80% of our waking hours where we are taking in some kind of media. And so I would encourage us to decrease media usage overall. And then the third thing is I would encourage others and myself to redefine beauty. And I would offer my own definition of the life of God at work in us and among us. And you know what we know about our neurobiology is what fires together, wires together. So the more we think a certain thought, feel a certain feeling or do a certain behavior, the more likely it is we're going to do it again. And so with that, we can kind of use that to leverage our redefining of beauty or redefinition of beauty and start to notice like true beauty in our midst and start giving that more airtime than we are um, I don't know, like social media influencers, uh, et cetera. So those are, those are some ideas. I love how in such a rich way, you're basically saying, one, we need to be aware of what we're receiving and then reduce the negative and then increase the positive. This idea of redefining beauty. And you kind of describe this liturgy of beauty. I love how you mm. said, what fires together wires together. This idea of when we mm. constantly repeat something to ourselves, we're training our brains, we're training our hearts, we're training our minds to actually believe that that is true. Whether that's mm. something you say in the mirror every day or that's a mantra mm. or some idea that you're just, it's like a liturgy. Mm. And kind of yeah. taking this liturgical yeah. element to beauty is, that's huge because I think, I think mm. we let others define it for us. And so, mm. Melissa, Thanks for joining me today. Oh, of course. This is I, I love this. And you've given me some um, new language, a liturgy of beauty. That's tremendous. I love that. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for having me. I've, I've loved our conversation. 
If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.